Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. And let's stand for the reading of God's Word, John chapter 19, verse 28. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. And a jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. So again, we return to this eyewitness testimony. Remember, this is eyewitness testimony of Jesus on the cross dying for the sins of the world. John had been told by Jesus to care for his mother, right? We looked at that last time. And his mother had been told to care for um, her son, John. Then I believe there were three hours, three hours when the agony of Christ, the very full weight of hell, The wrath of God descended upon his shoulders. Those three hours of agony are summarized in Jesus' words. They're not recorded in John, but in the other Gospels when when Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't think we can... I don't think we can have any inkling of what's going on in the cross unless we give those words some attention in our Christian life. That the Father, God, the Son of God would say to him, the Father and the Son who are one, have and always have been eternally one, somehow, in some way, there's a breach between that which is one And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that is the time when Jesus became your sins. Your individual sins. That's when he became your sins and the wrath of God descended upon him because every sin has to be punished. Every sin. Now, after that three hours of agony, after that three hours of, the density of that moment is is higher than the density of any black hole we've ever discovered or theorized about, right? The density of the, the wrath of God on the shoulders of the Son of God. But after that three hours, here's what we learn next about Jesus' status. It says this, Jesus knowing that all things had already been accomplished. That's what it says in our passage. 
Jesus, still on the cross, still dying, says, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished. So what had been been accomplished? I mean, it's interesting. While still alive, Jesus knew that he had accomplished the work of redemption. He knew it. We might think that he didn't realize it and that sort of everything was was in the balance and was a question until he was put in the tomb. But even before he died, he knew he had accomplished the work his father had given him to do. He's sitting there rejoicing in it, even alive on the cross, dying. Now, there's a difference between our deaths and Jesus' death. And we have to think about that in relation to Christ. Christ was a man fully man, fully God, right? Christ was a man and he had no sin, right? He would not have died. He would not have died of anything natural. He's a sinless man. Sinless humanity doesn't die, okay? We will find that out, right? In our second life, right? But, but he dies and so because, because he can't die, we find out that he died voluntarily. He died willingly. This was part of his will. This is a decision he made to die, right? He's not at the, he's not at the whims of other people, right? But he lays down his life voluntarily. Our death is involuntary. Completely involuntary, Right? He, being both God and man, had to willingly lay down his life. We don't have a choice in the matter. The cancer eats away the organs, and you cannot live any longer. The car wreck happens. The heart stops. Right? All these things you, you, you're not planning for. You didn't set a time, you know, a notification on your, on your uh, old iPhone to tell you that, and this... You know, this is when it's going to happen. We do not know the hour in which we will die. The Son of God, on the other hand, had to will it to happen, and he did. This was voluntary action on your behalf. He appointed this death at the fullness of time. Remember his words from earlier in his life, which we read in John 10. For this reason, the Father loves me because I laid down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again, this commandment I received from my Father. He has the authority to do it. He must do it, or he wouldn't have died. And so this statement, remarkable because it tells us what Jesus was thinking on the cross. Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, indicates that Jesus knew it was good, that it was appropriate, that it was now time for him to die. The work had been done, now it's time for me to die. Yes, death was still to come and the resurrection was still to come, but there was now nothing to hinder him from moving on to those things, right? 
He had lived according to the law for 33 years, never once sinning, and now because of that obedience, he died as an unblemished lamb of God, taking our place, redeeming lawbreakers. He had done all that the Father had given him to do, and now it was time to die. It was time to depart. It was time to enter into the grave. And so, in order to give another proof of his death being according to the will of God, he said, I am thirsty. I am thirsty. And he said it as a fulfillment of Scripture, right? He showed us by the statement that his suffering was real, right? He's not just, it's not imaginary suffering that he's going through. He's, he's suffering, right? He was offered, he was offered, um, he was offered gall earlier, and that's sort of, I think that's sort of medicinal. It hastens death, right? And he refused that. Now he's offered this sour wine where he says, I'm thirsty, and they give him sour wine. And, and what I believe that was, was the, the hooch that the soldiers had on hand. It was, it, was, it was not the other stuff, the stuff that would have hastened his death. It was something to wet his whistle with, right? And that's what was given to him, right? I mean, he shows us by this statement that his suffering was real, but notice how calm he is. Notice how, how self-controlled Jesus was during his crucifixion. But he was undoubtedly suffering. Think of the excruciating thirst of the man in hell that asked that Lazarus be sent back by Abraham to just dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off his tongue. For he was in agony in that flame, it says, Luke 16. Just the tip of his finger would be enough to give that man an exquisite millisecond of pleasure in those flames of hell. And here is Jesus. Here's Jesus Christ having endured the holocaust of the cross, the very wrath of God against sin, which can, you know, only be properly understood as it's expressed in the Apostles' Creed. He descended into hell. It's precisely what he did on the cross. He descended into hell. Yes, here is Jesus on the cross descending into hell, and he's suffering from thirst. His tongue cleaves to the roof of his mouth. There's no saliva in his throat. His throat burns, you know, from that, that dry throat. And he chokes out those words, I am thirsty. He was showing us he was suffering. He was showing us that his suffering was real. And in showing us that his suffering is real... He is testifying to the fact that he was indeed bearing your sins. If he had only appeared to suffer, right, that would mean that he hadn't become the curse, that he hadn't become your sin, and it would mean that the Father had not exhausted his wrath upon Jesus against your sins. If he hadn't suffered, you wouldn't be healed. He suffered so that the Father's justice could be satisfied. 
And your sins could really, actually, in time, be atoned for by precious blood. He was made sin for us. Does this this thrill you? Is this what you think about when you wake up? Or do the anxieties of the world choke off these thoughts? You should just be like, Jesus died for my sins. The wrath of God has been satisfied. I've been washed as white as snow. He's declared me righteous because I believe in him. Do you like, does that like, you know, do you get animated about that? This statement is a, is a um, fulfillment of Scripture, says Jesus. Psalm 69, 21. They also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink. Sour wine turned to vinegar. And so what was it they gave Jesus to drink and why did they have it on hand? What is gall? Some say that it's sour wine that the soldiers like to drink. Others say that it was some sort of turned wine that would, would cause suffering or hasten death. I, I really think it's, it's the former. I think the soldiers had it on hand for their provisioning. And the soldiers, or soldier who offered it to Jesus on a branch of hyssop, was genuinely trying to relieve his suffering. And notice it's a branch of hyssop. What's the other thing you think of with a branch of hyssop? The Passover. What did they put the blood around the lentil on, on a branch of hyssop, Right? Here's wine, red wine being lifted up to Jesus on a branch of hyssop. And though Jesus did receive the sour wine, it would have wetted his tongue, it would have soothed his throat, even if it was vinegar. Some of you drink vinegar straight up. Apple cider vinegar, right? You're junkies. But it would have soothed his throat. Think of being completely parched. Any liquid, you know, short of gasoline, would help. So again, his drinking of the vinegar shows, or the sour wine shows us, again, that Jesus willingly laid down his life. Even as he was perhaps feeling the surge of relief and the strength he gained from a little bit of liquid, he then, without much of a break dies, even while he's strengthened just a little bit by that drink, he dies. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Tetelestai, one word in the Greek. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. At this point, the skies, the skies, perhaps of the whole world, had been dark for three hours. The veil in the temple had been torn from top to bottom in two. Earthquakes began and rocks were split open. Tombs opened up and some of those who had died were raised from the dead. And Jesus is dying and that means that all of, all of creation is just straining under the weight of the death of Jesus Christ. And then what occurred from noon until three in the afternoon on that day is, 
is creation's response to the Son's faithful, wrath-bearing, propitiatory glory. And it all ends with Jesus saying two short phrases from his mouth. He just says, it is finished. And then not recorded by John, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now remember, hours before, remember John 17. I preached that three years ago. Remember John 17. Jesus had prayed anticipating this very moment. And what did he pray? He said, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Christ had accomplished on that cross everything that the Father had given him to do, everything that was necessary to save you. You were not able to do the work necessary to save yourself because you were dead, dead in your transgressions and sins, dead because you were born in sin. You inherited the corruption of Adam from your parents, right? And then you've, you've on top of that, you've added your own heap of sins, right? Whatever you once thought you could do to make an angry God happy has been shown to be both obnoxious and unnecessary. Christ did the work. Christ did the work. He did the work on the cross to save you. And there is salvation only in Him because He has done the work of atoning for sin. You know, even the Old Testament sacrifices instituted by God Himself were finished in the work of Christ on the cross. The bud of bulls and goats was not able to atone for sins, but Christ did actually atone for sins on the cross once for all. That's the gospel. It's glorious. Are you thankful? Are you thankful you don't deserve this? You weren't even thinking about God when God saved you. And if you were, you hated him. And God saved you. Are you satisfied with this arrangement? Are you satisfied with this arrangement that Jesus died for your sins and you're not saved by works, but you're saved by faith? Are you satisfied with that arrangement? It seems crazy to ask the question, doesn't it? It's like being given the, the, you know, the wealth of the nations and saying, well, are you satisfied or do you need more? Who in the world would reject work that cost them nothing and that someone did on their behalf? Who would reject that kind of thing? If someone came over and, and hauled a pile of chopped wood that went 30 feet in the air from the back part of your 20-acre plot right up to your house so you could burn it for heat in the winter, would you unstack it and bring it back to the back portion of your lot? And then start over to do it yourself the next minute. No. I mean, you should be grateful for the work done for you. But that is how some 
people act when it comes to religion. They do not like to be left out of the equation of salvation, right? They, they like that Christ has done something, but they also want to add a bit of their own muscle, just a little bit of their own muscle. Why? Why do we want to do this? Why is this our temptation, brothers and sisters? We just want to have a boast. We're boasters. Do you realize that that is what drives culture? That is what drives economies. That is what drives wars. That is what drives the history of the world. Is boast. Boasting. Having a boast. I was taking pride this morning in the fact that that we were the first nation to put men on the moon. Booyah! Right? And then I went and did some research, and I was like, the Russians were at the moon way before us. Right? Not with men. No one else has done that. But they had landers and all these things, and I had no clue about any of that. And I was like, well, there goes my boast. That stinks. I want to have that boast. But brothers and sisters... How scandalous when we need to boast about our salvation. We want a part that we can claim as our own, right? They want you and I want some credit in our salvation. We don't like to lose our boast. We feel so unfulfilled if we can't take some credit for the good status that we currently have. But with Christ, he did it all. He left you nothing to take credit for. He did it all. Right? He finished the work. The task of standing before a holy God is a much more difficult work than moving a pile of wood. In fact, a man standing before God in holiness would be impossible If it were not for Christ's work, there is no salvation outside of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Oh, we still want to take some credit. It's the whole grace plus scheme of cults. It's the whole grace plus scheme of semi-Christian religions. It's the whole blasphemous Grace plus work scheme of the Roman Catholic Church. Add your works to Christ's works. The Apostle Paul had to address this with the Galatians and the Colossians. It's as if, it's as if you know, Christ on the cross said, it is almost finished. You know, it's, fin- it's finished for the most part. It's it's 99% finished. No, man. He said it is finished. We like to boast. We want credit. We are so arrogant about our works that we think we can stand before Almighty God and intimidate Him. Force His hand by the amazing quality of our works. No, not so. 
Never. Never. You're not impressive. None of you are impressive. I don't care if you have a PhD. You're not impressive. You are sinners. That is what marks you. That is your your first identity. It's pervasive. And you need the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse you from that sin. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, Listen to this next phrase, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Oh, man. We're boasters. We just want one little place where we can take credit for the good things of our life, even in our religion, even in our approach to God ethically, even, I mean, just everything we want to take credit. But Jesus said, it is finished. And what are the things that were finished when he said, it is finished? Well, the the hostility he had to endure as the God-man was finished. The Herodians, the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders, the chief priests, the Pharisees, they had had their day and they were finished. No more, no more persecuting of Christ. They had put Jesus on the cross and now at his death, there was nothing more that they could do to him. It is finished, the work of bearing the wrath of God against sin. Yes, the men of that age had put Jesus to death, but their, but their sin was used by God for good ends. Remember what the Apostle Peter says in Jerusalem, preaching in the same city where all this went down after Jesus' death. Men of Israel, listen to these words, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him, In your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So you see, Jesus was there on the cross, cross, finishing the work of his father. It is finished. In the death of Christ on the cross, all the ceremonial laws that were meant to point to Christ were removed. They were done. They have no use, no value. If the sacrificial system was put in place to anticipate and teach about the sacrifice of Christ, 
then when the actual sacrifice happens and is completed and demonstrated to the world, there's no reason at all anymore to have a forward-looking picture of atonement. They're done. We need only now look to Christ. Right? Hebrews chapter 10. And then it is finished. The reign of, get this, the reign of sin has ended. The reign of sin has ended. Adam had plunged mankind into death. And now the second Adam had made man alive from the dead. So then as through one, man, one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. It is finished. The suffering of Jesus was finished. He returns to glory, the glory he had before the foundation of the world. John 17, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And he enters into the joy he anticipated before his excruciating death as the curse. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So it is finished. His life here in the flesh is now ended, and he dies. It is finished. The redemption of sinful man, the satisfaction of an angry God were accomplished. And you, dear brothers and sisters, are now able by means of faith to enter into paradise clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Is this your hope? Is this the joy of your life? Is this what fills you with persevering strength when you face various trials in your life? There are alternatives but they are not true, true alternatives. I mean, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You may try to mediate with your works. You may try to mediate with your charisma. You may try to mediate with, with your intelligence. You may try to mediate with your wealth. You may try to mediate with psychedelic experiences. You may try to mediate with some sort of universalistic, non-biblical, theological heresy. But all you must do is believe in Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. Jesus has completed the work that was necessary. It is finished. And all you must do is trust in the completed work of Christ. Leave off your boast. Is your boast really going to be the thing that you want to retain and it, and it ends you up in hell? Leave off your boast. Believe in Jesus Christ. Let him take all of the credit. He has done well. 
Calvin says, if we give our assent to this word which Christ pronounced, we ought to be satisfied with his death alone for salvation, and we are not at liberty to apply for assistance in any other place. For he who was sent by the Heavenly Father to obtain for us a full acquittal and to accomplish our redemption knew well what belonged to his office and did not fail in what he knew to be demanded of him. It was chiefly for the purpose of giving peace and tranquility to our consciences that he pronounced this word, it is finished. And then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus, of his own own volition, gave up his spirit. All of his work was voluntary, and he commits his spirit to the Father. That is what you and I will do when we die if we know Christ. If we know Christ, we do not, you know, have... If we don't know Christ, we don't have that kind of comfort, right? You venture into the unknown. But if we die in Christ, trusting him, believing in him, our dying thought will be to ask God to protect our souls until the day of resurrection. That will be the thought as we we go into his presence. And so what a savior, no doubt. What a savior, what love, what incredible action in this world. What blessed communion we have with God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son by the Spirit. And so... Let's make our, the rest of our lives a thank offering to the God who saved us and who saves us. The God who sent his son into this world that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. It's glorious. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his power. We thank you for his condescending humility. We thank you for his humiliation. We thank you for his bearing your wrath on the cross. We thank you for his death. We thank you for his resurrection. We thank you that he willingly laid down his life and he willingly took it up again. And he did so for us. Lord, thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.